0: hi and welcome back this is disability saves the world with dr Fadi shinuda i am Fadi shinuda this podcast brings you insights from leading experts in disability and math studies from around the world you'll hear about the research and work of disabled scholars activists artists and our allies you'll also get some insight into their lives their favorite non-ds activities hobbies and adventures most importantly, you'll get to hear how they think disability can save the world. My name again is Fedi Shinuda. I use he, him pronouns. I have a PhD in public health sciences and I am currently a postdoc at the City University of London. I identify as a fat, disabled, cis man of color. If you would like to know me a little bit more, please check out my work at FedeShenouda.com. On today's show, I am joined by Dr. Chelsea Jones. Chelsea, who uses she, her pronouns, is many things. An instructor at Ryerson University, a research associate at Revision, the Center for Art and Social Justice, and a fellow podcaster with her own show, Podagogies, a learning and teaching podcast. Chelsea has also been teaching disability studies online or in a hybrid capacity for almost a decade. I'm so thrilled to have her on the show to talk to her about her work and research.
1: You know, we have to remember that online education is a massive industry under a neoliberal model of education that has a vested interest in commercializing its delivery.
0: And her life outside of academia.
1: So I learned to bake almost online my mom and i like baking because it gives me like immediate satisfaction
0: and to ask her the seminal question how she thinks disability can save the world hi chelsea hey
1: how's it going
0: good thank you for coming on the podcast
1: thanks for having me
0: I really appreciate it. Um, we're still both in quarantine. It's like day, yeah. what is it, like week three now?
1: It feels like it's been about a month, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it feels like I've been sitting in this office maybe for a month straight. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so we're both trying to get through it. We're finding new yeah. ways of, um, I guess, living and accommodating and working, Um, but yeah, thank you for spending, uh, kind of a Friday uh, afternoon with me, uh, talking about some stuff. I want to jump right into segment one, what I call inside the project, the research, the work, the art. Um, Mm, I want to know how you got involved. Why, why disability studies? Why math studies as a discipline? Why
1: disability studies? Okay. That's a really, um, that's a really interesting question. And it's a nice one to kind of reflect upon. Because sometimes when you get into your daily routine, I don't know, it can just be nice to think about sort of where it all started. So we have this joke in my family that everything I write or anything I say starts with the phrase, my brother, Kevin. Um, And that's because when I was in like grade six and seven, um, we had a speech writing contest. You know how they do that sort of in, in middle school um, where you have to get up. Yeah. And you have to like write a speech and say it in front of everyone. And at the time I didn't know what the concept of self-plagiarism was. I I had no idea. And so in between these years, we moved, my family moved from one town to another town um, in Saskatchewan. And so in grade six, I wrote this speech called My Brother Kevin, and it was about my brother who has an intellectual disability. Um, You know, at the time he was a kid like me, and now he's a, he's a, adult with an intellectual disability who doesn't communicate in normative ways and then in grade seven I just recycled the same speech because I was at a new (laughs) high school and I didn't know that that was self-plagiarism and I won both years and so I (laughs) learned really quickly that like audiences were responsive to you know speaking about disability and kind of resistive ways or ways that were resistive for me at that age. Um, And so anyway, the joke in my family is that all my work starts with my brother Kevin, which of course isn't true. But a lot of my work um, does come back to my relationship with my brother, which is sort of my familial connection to intellectual disability. And among some circles, such as in institutional survivor circles and um, sort of points of disability community like that, Um, I'm known as other people are known as like a sibling or as a sister, meaning that I'm in close familial relationship with someone with an intellectual disability. And sometimes my disability studies interest and scholarship and activist work is grounded in that understanding. Um, So for example, Later on in my life, um, I was working as a journalist, my background is in journalism, and I was living in Nepal. And while I was there, one of the things I was doing, I was doing travel journalism, but um, I also began doing some journalism about disability. And I had been trained in journalism school to tell disability stories in a particular way. And yeah. I think a lot of us, yeah, like know what that way is, kind of focusing on the supercrip or like overcoming tropes and that sort of thing. And I knew I didn't like that. Like I, I felt like there was something wrong with that kind of narrative, but I didn't really know what. And while I was in Nepal, I noticed that I was trying to tell stories about disability, but I just wasn't finding disability anywhere. Like, I couldn't, for example, even sort of see disabled folks on the streets. And I I didn't know why. And, you know, of course, there was invisible disability and madness and all sorts of things present. But it wasn't as obvious to me as it was um, in my home country of Canada. So I began looking into that a little bit more and trying to write more critically about disability and understanding it um, through like a non-Western lens and trying to figure out what was happening in Nepal and why it felt so new to me. And in doing that research, um, I learned about disability studies. I saw um, on television actually, I think it was on Vision TV, a clip of um, the iconic Catherine Frazee. And she was talking about the social model of disability, which at the time was a concept I hadn't heard of, I didn't understand. And so I traveled to the University of New Delhi and found a disability studies textbook and began reading it. And it really kind of opened me up to a different sociocultural understanding of disability, one that I hadn't learned in journalism school, and it began to inform my storytelling. And then while I was in Nepal, um, I applied to be a student in a critical disability studies program in Toronto, um, in order to sort of formalize that understanding and be able to apply it to my journalism. And then I just sort of kept going and kept going. Yeah. And so, you know, here I am now doing sort of a hybrid of journalism and academic stuff and just working in sort of the realm of disability studies.
0: I mean, I I kind of really love that story also because like I've known you for quite some time and I'm still learning new things about how you came to, you know, (laughs) something that we've shared for quite some time. I didn't know about your trip to New Delhi. That's like a totally new piece of information. Um, But it shows, I mean, it's not surprising at all to me that you would like find a book that you wanted to read and travel, what, hundreds of kilometers maybe (laughs) or something to go and pick it up.
1: I know. I'm so thankful that these days it's easier to obtain books. But it's, I mean, (laughs) even after reading that book and after feeling like, okay, I have a sense of what disability studies might be, I was still faced with like this material sort of incompatibility of how I was thinking about disability and how it was being lived out in the world. So, for example, when I came back from Nepal... Um, I had um, a filmmaker um, and a couple people who were part of his company approach me and ask me if I would like to go back again and make a documentary with them about the difference between how people with Down syndrome lived in Nepal, which really was, you know, starkly different than what I had known growing up in Canada, um, and how my brother lived in Canada, right? And I could see how, they could sort of pull two narratives um, out of that and want to do that comparison and in a way I thought it was kind of interesting because one of the things that happens in Canada is that uh, you know school systems are regulated by law right like you have to send your kids to school and of course we can have wide vast debates about the adequacy of school systems but you know you have to school your children whereas In Nepal at the time, kids didn't have to go to school. Um, That wasn't the law there. So it was a big privilege for some kids to go to school. And I had talked to a lot of families who were really fiercely advocating for their kids with Down syndrome or with other disabilities to be allowed in school because at the time there was still fear that intellectual disability would be contagious and that if these kids were in school... um, it might catch, you know, with the other kids. Um, So that was sort of the comparison they wanted to make. And I remember at the time being approached around this project and just not knowing why, like, I didn't like the idea. Like, it just wasn't sitting well with me. And I couldn't wrap my mind around retelling that story of, like, my brother Kevin in that way, because I didn't know what it would do to Kevin, and I didn't know what it would do To the relationships I built with people in Nepal and their understanding of of how things were like in in their cultural context and stuff and I just I didn't have the words at the time to understand why this sort of like ableist colonial sort of mishmash unsettled me and so yeah that was why I really wanted to get into disability studies because I wanted to be able to better understand and articulate why I was having such problems reconciling these thoughts or these narratives about disability.
0: I've always thought some of the most power, like one of the most powerful thing about um, education in general, of course, but specifically disability studies is that, that icky feeling that some of us get and some of us mm-hmm. have all the time gets language we get to articulate it you know more succinctly we know where those we, we we've read people who've thought about those ideas long and hard yeah and come up with ways of talking about it and and you know acquiring that language is so helpful that we can then communicate that icky feeling the the the, the you know the ideas that we know are real but Uh, we don't always have language for. So I I fully kind of understand where you're coming from, where like you need to go when you find that language.
1: Totally. And I think, I mean, it's it's a real privilege to be able to tap into that kind of language, to be able to access it and Mm -hmm. get the mentorship you need to understand it and all that kind of of stuff. And I think, um, you know, I think it's important to remember that that kind of academic language, the kind of jargon that we use to help explain ourselves and that icky feeling um, is really inaccessible to most people, right? And I think that there's a risk in disability studies as, as there is in many disciplines that we sort of get lost in the language, right? Like we find a comfortable way to talk to each other and then We don't talk to other people. And so for that reason, and for, I guess, a number of other reasons, I've really tried to continue focusing my research on people with intellectual disabilities in cultural circumstances where they often aren't getting access to that kind of language. And I mean, I guess you know, like my brother Kevin would be, would be an example. I think I'm, I, I'm like somehow proving my family right here. But, you know, there there are tons of people who don't have access to that. And I think that it is the researcher's responsibility um, or the disability studies, I don't know, thinker's responsibility um, to be able to incorporate that into their work and into their discourse about disability. Um, And I think that's really one of the only ways that we can actually be critical in this field.
0: And of course, you know, academia has to work harder to make itself more accessible to all disabled people. Um, And that's, of course, something that I think it has been trying to do, but of course, could do better. I want to get to the kind of research topic that you're working on, Um, the project that you want to talk about. What is that topic? What is the project?
1: Okay, well, this is actually, um, I guess I want to talk about something else that has been giving me that icky feeling lately. Um, And, you know, to be honest, the things I'm thinking about today are really new ideas. They're really generative ideas. Um, They're not entirely rooted in the scholarship that I've been engaged with for the past 10 years. Um... But I think there's connections there, and because they're so new, like I'm, I just want to talk to you. I just want to swing around some ideas, right? Like I, I don't feel like I'm here on this podcast to like do my job talk or you know propose a project or whatever. No, but, please,
0: please don't do that. No, uh,
1: no, <laughs> no. But I mean, so the thing that's giving me the icky feeling these days is this sudden and very abrupt push for. Online education. Mm. Um, Yeah. And I mean, this this has come up in recent days because of the covid-19 pandemic and the need for our industry to keep going. Right. And I'm thinking of the industry of teaching and learning, basically. Um, So I don't know about you or about the listeners. Um, who might hear this, but I know that many people in my circles received sort of a very sudden notice a couple of weeks ago that all of their courses would be moving online and they were to learn how to teach online very quickly and transfer all the knowledge to an online space. And the assumption was that students would somehow be able to access this and be able to sort of catch on and keep up. And there seemed to be sort of a tenor of like, you know the the um, institution saying, "We know this might be difficult. So here's a bunch of tools. Here's a bunch of checklists. Here's a bunch of ways to make your course accessible. And this was really interesting to me because, as someone who's been teaching online for, you know, eight or nine years um and trying to make my classes as accessible as possible within the institutional confines and the platforms that, me and my students can access, Um, it was the first time that I've ever seen this push to make online learning accessible, like an institutionalized push. And that at first glance seems like a really positive thing, right, the more we can do to make things accessible, the better, right, like let's get some captions going, let's get some transcripts out there, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so that's that's good, right, I'm glad that that's out there. But it did give me that sort of that feeling that comes along when you begin to realize, hmm, I think that we need to look at something a lot more critically, right? So, I mean, our engagement with online education really critically complicates ideas of accessible teaching and learning, right? When we think about disability studies online, it is not a quick transfer from the classroom to online. There's a lot to consider, right? So think about how, for example, like the neoliberal university does a lot of strategizing around diversity. And you can see that in some of the materials that are being outputted right now. But at the same time, marginalized people's experiences of online education continue to be like underrepresented or invisible. And I know, you know, there's scholars um, who focus in on higher education and disability studies and concepts like academic ableism, like Jay Dolmage. And I have heard him say in a few different contexts that it's really common for conversations about accessibility to make like zero mention of disabled people. And the struggle for recognition of disability culture and disabled people's contributions to knowledge and activism and theories that inform, like, entire fields of study, you know, um, tend to be overlooked as we think about accessible online education. At the same time, you know, another sort of paradox is that we have this legislation in Ontario anyway and in other parts um, of, of Canada where we're directed on how to build accessible courses or how to make learning and teaching more accessible. But at the same time, the courses themselves are embedded in academic ableism. And and, academic ableism tends to be this type of ableism within academia that ensures that students who are thinking or moving or expressing themselves or learning in ways that are not aligned with the norm cannot succeed. And many of our examples of academic ableism come from the face-to-face classroom, right? We can point to sort of structural examples of how that works. We can also point to rhetorical examples, thinking about sort of who's invited to the university spaces, thinking about eugenic discourse and how it perpetuates itself, right? And now Mm -hmm. I think we need to think about how those structural gestures of ableism Um, and the rhetorical ones are transferred online, right? Especially through these sort of like teaching tips, right? And we consider how when we get these teaching tips, the precariousness of teaching labor remains hidden. So we've got this sort of reach of online education that is expanding in an unprecedented way right now. I mean, the shift online is... Massive, it's a huge wave. Um, but without a lot of critical reflection on how teachers and learners and developers and everyone you know involved in this massive industry, um, is working to fit themselves in to what used to be sort of the outskirts of teaching yeah. and learning, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really, I mean, it's a really compelling question about like who is access for, when is access being. Um, when is access being appropriated? Um, um, when is access being denied? When is, when, when is access, um, you know, for the common good? It's like, it's interesting and compelling that all of a sudden, you know, we're all going online and like you said, um, we're supposed to be doing it accessibly, but it's, you know, disability is never mentioned in those conversations. I'm wondering if you can give the audience a sense of like the time frame that people have been given to go online and really how long it actually takes to build an online classroom.
1: Mm, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a great thing to think about. And I think how long it takes to build an online classroom really depends on who you are and what resources you have at your disposal and what kind of mm-hmm. institutional support you have and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I, I would say it should take um, several weeks, perhaps. I mean, given sort of the the resources I'm familiar with, working at a big institution in, in Toronto that is used to online teaching and learning, um, it would take several weeks to develop a course and effectively put it online. And recently, a lot of my colleagues who are also working at these big sort of um, similar institutions were given about one or two weeks to transfer everything online. And a lot of that transfer came with the assumption that students would be able to access this material. Um, And I think, you know, we see that also in the public school system. And we see that this access, this sort of imagined access is, is a fallacy. Like CBC reported yesterday that school boards are having difficulty equipping students with laptops and are telling parents to head to school parking lots I to know. access Wi-Fi, And, you know, I think that demonstrates the ways in which access to this mode of learning is a fallacy. However, that is also intention with the understanding that we can't be in the same place at the same time right now. Um, and we have to continue communicating. We we have to do something about this, right? So, you know, I think about Aisha Ahmed wrote this really lovely article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, and she wrote about this pandemic crisis. And she said in the article, um, quite blatantly, like, there's simply no way that our lives will resume as if this had never happened. Yeah. So. Yeah, we're kind of we're kind of stuck here, right? In this new wave of online learning, which is no doubt part of the trajectory of the sort of um, techno-social intellectual revolution that we are part of. Online learning is here and here to stay in a, in a big way, bigger than ever before. But I think it's important that we look at it critically because even though we're in this sort of unprecedented situation where we've had to transfer online in in a very short amount of time, if we're here for the long haul, that gives us some time to think critically about it. And I think one of the big pitfalls of online education to this point is that it hasn't always been developed in consultation with disabled, deaf, mad people. who have a lot of community knowledge about what it means um, to be working online and what it sometimes means to be working apart from one another.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a great conversation. I mean, one that I think uh, will need to happen. I'm glad it is happening early on in this kind of, you know, everything being transferred online. I think it'll continue to happen as you say. Um, But I do hope that, you know disabled communities are consulted in fact you know many of the things that we use online the technologies that we use were invented for if not by mm-hmm. you know disabled communities so that they could con- communicate that they could access the world right um just the idea of like you know text messages was like you know the original idea was for deaf people to communicate right so that they could mm-hmm. talk to each other so just you know those those things are, um, it's so important to acknowledge their kind of history, how they're going to be used, how potentially they're going to be appropriated, how we can fight back against that. What's really interesting is I just, I think I, I don't know where I read this or who I heard this from, but a friend of mine, I think told me that, um, that they're giving away computers to students, like mm. laptops, the students who don't have laptops, these, this is like universities are doing this. And it's so interesting to think of, like, the hurdles that disabled students have had to jump through. Like, Mm -hmm. we're talking about, you know, getting OSAP, going through funding. You know, I wrote an entire paper on what it's like to go through, you know, BSWD funding. Um, And now they're essentially just, you know, giving some students laptops for free so they can access online. What did it tell me? uh, Like, they could have always done that. Right. Well,
1: exactly, and I think a lot of the, a lot of what we're going through right now that feels to many people like a big change, and I've been describing here as a, like a massive shift, is, um, something that some disabled people have been quite used to for some time now, and there's lots to learn from those folks, yeah. and I think that the things that we learn are not always going to be things we want to hear, right? So I think about um, well I think I think okay, I've, I guess I have two things to say about this. The first is that if we're going to make a commitment to accessible online pedagogy, we do need to have meaningful consultation and listen to what disability communities are telling us about education and and that means being very wary of moments when disabled people's stories are co-opted for institutional gain. Because, you know, make no mistake, like the online education industry is a big industry. There's a lot Mm, of stakeholders involved. Yeah, yeah. And there have been some recent reports um, Inside Higher Education also published something recently where they cited evidence from a report. um, One of the authors is a person named Sandy Baum, who, said um, explicitly that there is considerable danger that moving vulnerable students online will widen attainment gaps rather than actually solving the problem of unequal education opportunities. So what we're learning in recent research is that online education has failed to improve affordability and it costs more than face-to-face options and it's really overrepresented in the for-profit sector and there's been a lot of critiques of that report um, and certainly all education should be critiqued and open for criticism but you know we have to remember that online education is a massive industry under a neoliberal model of education that has a vested interest in commercializing its delivery right and so when we consult with disabled people, it can't be superficial consultation. And I've seen that happen time and again. And I can think, for example, of one instance where I was at an online teaching edu- um, where I was at an online education conference and I went to a session about an online teaching platform. And at the session, there was a man who stood at the front of the room and he talked about his platform. And then as an example, he Skyped in a woman with a disability who talked for about 10 minutes, but it really wasn't possible to understand what she was saying. And it wasn't that she was ununderstandable; It had nothing to do with impairment. It had to do with like a technological glitch. Like you just couldn't understand what she was saying. It was clearly like a Skype problem. You know, when you have a Skype problem and you just know that the other person isn't getting across, right? Yes. And yeah. And so this person, this woman on the other end, went on for about 10 minutes. And I'm not really sure what she talked about. And at the end, everyone clapped. And I was just really astonished because we clearly hadn't caught what she said. I mean, and what I realized was in that moment in that room was that. It didn't really matter what she said. As long as there was sort of a disabled person represented in the room, people were satisfied enough that online teaching and learning would be accessible and would be good for disabled folks. And that really stirred me up. Like, I remember feeling actually quite agitated by that experience because I wanted to know what the woman said, but I also wanted to know why people were accepting online learning and teaching as like a savior for disabled people without doing any sort of meaningful consultation right like having someone in the room is just it's not enough right it's a superficial kind of representation so i think that the consultation needs to be meaningful it needs to be real and the second thing i think is that we need to be prepared to hear things that maybe we don't want to hear so i think about our context right now Things are moving online rapidly. We're trying to be accessible. Maybe we're following universal design checklists, that sort of thing, Um, trying to make classes accessible, trying to get students through their semester. But at the same time, there's bigger concerns or maybe other concerns in disability communities. So I think about um, Rabbi Elliot Kukla wrote recently in the New York Times about this pandemic and what it was going to mean for themselves, and for their community, and for the disabled people, and chronically ill people, and older people living around them. And what he wrote was that disabled and sick people already know that stillness can be caring, and that rest is disability justice. And right now, it is one of our most powerful tools to keep one another alive. So advocating not for like a surge in accessible online anything but instead advocating for stillness and for rest and if we listen to disability communities who might be saying we need rest we need a break we need to take care of each other in ways that don't amount to just transferring classes online and keeping ableist industries going online, is that enough to satisfy what we need to hear, right? Does that satisfy um, academic ableism? Perhaps not. So, yeah, I mean, I guess those are the two things on my mind right now as I think about how we can consider a critical approach to accessible online learning. And, And that is that we need to do meaningful consultation and we need to be prepared to hear what we might not want to learn in light of a crisis or in light of our own money-making industries going online.
0: I'm so glad you're thinking about this, you know, during the crisis and that you'll be thinking about it after the crisis. I know you've already written a little bit about this. I'm just glad that someone who's as smart as you and has who's involved in like this, who's been doing this for quite some time is, you know, is thinking about this and thinking about it so deeply. And so I appreciate that. And I look forward to kind of, you know, all the things that you come up with in terms, uh, in in ways that hopefully answers these questions. Oh,
1: that's very Um, kind of you.
0: (laughs) So I want to move on to segment two, if you're all right with that. I'd like to ask you about, um, segment two is called The Middle, The Liminal. um, And I want to ask you, who's your academic crush? Who is someone you cannot stop reading or recommending?
1: Mm. Okay, my academic crush. Okay, so that's, (laughs) so there is, there is someone who popped into my mind, but the word crush doesn't fit. Like I, I would never say to this person, like you're my academic crush. It's actually someone I know. Um, she's a mentor of mine and, um, her name is is Nancy Viva Davis Halifax, and oh, um, yes. Nancy, yeah, I know, and she's the best. Um, Nancy is also a poet, and I guess I wouldn't, I don't know if I would say Nancy is an academic crush, because that feels weird, but I would say that I'm <laughs> like a fan, maybe, in yeah. some ways, um, and she's a poet, and I, I do have one of her poems tattooed on my ankle, so I think that makes me a fan
0: I mean, if you don't know who Nancy Viva Davis Halifax is, you need to find out because, I mean, just an amazing scholar, an amazing poet, an amazing person. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I learn a lot from her um, all the time. And I remember meeting her um, when I was first interested in disability studies and reading her work and thinking, oh, gosh, I'll never understand this. And. Then after a while, it sort of sunk in and I began understanding. And that was one of the ways that I came to learn that I didn't need to rely on normative language to get through um, the academy or to get through a deeper understanding of things. Mm. So, yeah, I really I really am indebted to her in terms of um, knowledge. Yeah,
0: I think my favorite uh, uh, Halifax quote uh, that she said personally to me was. Um, Fadie, misunderstanding is a type of understanding.
1: Mm. Yeah. And I
0: was like, and that was it's it's been really profound to me to think about like non normative ways of thinking, understanding, communicating, expressing that we take as like um not understanding, right? As misunderstanding and and to reframe them as like, no, that just is another way of looking, feeling, expressing, and understanding the world. And that's right. Yeah, I've held that. I've held that very deeply in my soul. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a Nancy arrow, right? It hits you (laughs) and you're like, whoa. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, those kinds of ideas that people like Nancy um, understand and and teach us, they can inform our research methods, they can inform our approach and our um, ability to sort of move between this ethos of academic understanding and language making into for lack of a better word like the real world where people are discussing disability in very real lived out ways um and of course those two things can intersect and and they do but um i think for instance about research I've done with people who um, are writing, like I've done research around expressive writing, and they're writing things on paper that I I can't read. I I don't understand the shapes and the symbols. Um, And I think in other disciplines, that would be very quickly discounted as non-reliable data or as invalid. But in disability studies, we can begin to look at it in a different way and account for our own misunderstanding, as a way of understanding, um, as the researchers. What does it mean when a researcher misunderstands or doesn't understand and how can we count that as knowledge?
0: That's wonderful. Um, Do you have any advice for younger academics or students?
1: I don't know if I have any advice.
0: I mean, as someone who writes a lot, do you have any advice about writing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I can offer some advice about writing. Um, what I know about writing is that the only way to do it is to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you just need to sit down and do it. And that c- that is advice that I have received from mentors. And it can be really difficult to put it into action. But there's no use waiting for a moment of inspiration or something like that. I don't even really think that inspiration is a thing. If you just sit and do it, it'll get done. And I think my doctoral supervisor really pushed this advice home. Um, And one of the reasons I chose her as my supervisor is because she would say to her classes often, the best dissertations are the finished ones. And I thought, yeah, I think she's right about that. And so my goal in dissertation writing became to finish it, not to write greatest thing on earth and that was fine as long as you do the writing it'll get done
0: absolutely i I mean i think that's it's such a practical piece of information but it's so important because i think writing is somehow fetishized in academia as this like Mm -hmm. illustrious Mm -hmm. mysterious kind of thing that we do when in fact it's just about like a rigorous practice of doing it day in and day out um and sitting there and just you know writing garbage at first and then the garbage you know gets a little bit better after one after a little bit
1: (laughs) after a while
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it needs to be edited people that's what it needs
1: to yeah the garbage needs to get like really sour before it gets better
0: (laughs) there you go (laughs) what a metaphor All right, segment three, I call this outside the project, the research, the work, the art. Um, oh, good. Chelsea, tell us about a famous person you've met, and what was that experience like?
1: <laughs> um, I haven't met a lot of famous people, but I will tell you about the time that I met Christian Slater. Um, wow. So, well, don't get too excited just yet. <laughs> I, um, I worked on a film set one summer. And um, this was in Saskatchewan. And the film company I was working for was making um, a film called Dolan's Cadillac, which is like, I think it's a Stephen King novel. You'll notice throughout this story that like my knowledge on Christian Slater or the film are really patchy. Like I, (laughs) I really don't remember and didn't care much about the film at the time. It was just a summer job. And At one point in my job, the public relations person handed me an envelope and said, these are headshots of Christian Slater. I need you to go find him and tell him to sign these headshots. And I was like, oh, man, like, I don't know what Christian Slater looks like. I don't know how to find this guy. And on a film set, um, sometimes like the actors and stuff are not in costume, right? They're doing other things on the set. So I was sort of looking around and I was looking for like a man. I knew he had dark hair and I looked around and it felt like all the men in the room had dark hair. And I was like, but which one is Christian Slater? Like, I really didn't know. (laughs) So I opened up the envelope and I looked at this headshot and then I looked around again and I identified someone who I thought was Christian Slater. And so I went up to him and it was him. Thank goodness. And You know, he took the envelope and I guess he signed the things, but he was very polite, very amicable. But I just remember like really not knowing who Christian Slater was. And I still think to this day, if you showed me a picture, like a lineup of people who look like Christian Slater, I don't think that I could tell you who he is. But I did meet him briefly and, you know, he was nice.
0: That's cool. I love that. um obscure fact what obscure fact do you carry around and pull out when there's a lull in a conversation
1: oh man when there's a lull in the conversation i usually step away like i (laughs) (laughs) i'm such an introvert i guess like i'm just imagining myself at a party where there's a lull in the conversation i will not step up and fill it like i'll just step away and we'll never speak of it again. Um, I don't know, what would I bring up if I couldn't step away? I mean, one obscure fact that I like um, and that I like to tell all my friends about because I like to boast that I'm from Saskatchewan and I think it's better than anywhere else. Um, so sometimes I tell people that Grasslands National Park in Saskatchewan is one of the quietest ecosystems on earth. And sometimes I think about that when I'm in the hustle and bustle of Toronto. And then I tell people, and it's usually unwelcome information. Nobody seems to care about it. So, you know. So
0: does that mean it's quiet because like there's less birds or there's less crickets or there's less like the wildlife itself is quiet?
1: I think it's, I mean, listen, I'm not an authority <laughs> on grasslands. <laughs> let's let's be honest. I, I don't know why it's quiet, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just a quiet place. Um, I've never been there, and I should go there if I'm going to be rude enough to, you know, pull that factoid out whenever I want to.
0: I love, I love that fact. I'm yeah. Now I have to do research. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> um, can you tell us what you're reading now? What book you uh, is on your nightstand?
1: Yeah. So the book on my nightstand is. A book called Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel and if you have read Station Eleven you'll know that at a time of a uh, worldwide pandemic it's a bit on the nose to be reading this book because it's about a pandemic and it begins in Toronto and it's about something called the Georgia flu which sort of rips around the world and, um, and only a few people are left on earth including a traveling theater company that moves sort of around the southern Ontario area or what was known as the S- southern Ontario area when the world was functioning quote-unquote normally and so that's what the book is about it's it's like a catastrophe kind of book um, but it was recommended to me and I just can't put it down so I haven't although I will say I'm disappointed in the amount of narrative prosthesis that is in this book mm. like there are there have been two disabled characters that have just sort of been killed off pretty quickly. Like they clearly were just being used to uphold the narrative. So like, that's kind of, that's kind of a bummer, but you know, I still can't put it down and I want to get to the end of it and see how this pandemic rolls out in the fictional realm.
0: Right. A recommendation then, or something that you would say people should pass on.
1: I would say it's like a lukewarm recommendation. It's, Mm. It's a good read. I love the way the narrative is structured. I love the writing. Um, But it could be um, kind of an upsetting read at this time, I think. So, you know, I wouldn't rush to pick it up, no.
0: (laughs) Okay. Sounds good. Um, Can you tell us about a hobby that you enjoy and how you got started uh, doing that particular hobby?
1: One thing I really enjoy doing is baking, um, and I think I got started baking when I moved out of my parents' house. So I guess when I was 19 or something and my mom is an incredible baker. Like she just, it's, she's incredible at a lot of things and baking is one of them. And she's so good that growing up and even now, I, I never look at baking in public places, like at a cafe or a bake shop or something. I never look at it as desirable or tasty. Like I just, I just know that it can't live up to my mom's baking. So I don't oh, even wow. bother. Like I just, I don't bother to sort of ever pick up a cookie with my coffee or anything. Cause I just, I know it won't be as good. So my mom is this incredible baker, but I think I have this sort of suspicion that, she used baking to get away from us kids because we were so annoying so (laughs) I never really learned to bake from her until I wasn't living with her and then I would email her for recipes and then you know she'd send me a recipe and I'd have to email back and say like how much is a quart of milk or you know does TBS mean tablespoon or teaspoon what is that and she'd write back and be like, Oh my God, didn't you learn anything growing up with me? And I'd be like, no, I didn't. And and then we'd have these sort of like email quarrels. And so I have this recipe book. That's just like, it looks like a very dysfunctional, like mother daughter relationship, even though it's not that bad. So I learned to bake almost online through my mom. And I like baking because I don't know, it gives me like immediate satisfaction. I you know, I bake something, I have it, I can eat it. It's an amazing experience, frankly. The only thing is, though, fady I'll tell you. so I, now that I've been at home a lot more, I've been watching a lot more TV. And I started watching the show, I think it's called the Kids Baking Challenge. Are you familiar with it?
0: I'm not.
1: Okay, I mean, it's like a chef show, but the chefs are kids, basically. Right. Or the bakers That just sounds are
0: like an amazing premise. God, those Hollywood people.
1: Oh, I know. And... So I watched this show, and these kids, these 11year- olds, are incredible. Like a couple weekends ago, I made a vanilla pound cake, and I was really proud of myself because like it was good and I made it, and you know, I felt quite good about it. And then I watched this show, and there was a 10-year- old or an 11-year- old on this show who made a pound cake. But as part of like a three element dessert, like this was just part of their dessert. And so (laughs) it really wounded my pride to see that these kids can just casually like throw together the perfect pound cake. Um, So what I view as my hobby is probably laughable for these amazing baking kids. But you know what? We all have our strengths. It's fine.
0: Yeah, and we can all, our hobbies can be at different levels, right? We can't all be 10-year-old prodigies, baking (laughs) prodigies.
1: I know, I know. And the sad thing about that show is that the judges, I think, are nice to them. But it actually looks like a traumatic experience for these kids when they get get (laughs) taken off the show. And so, like, I'm also pleased that there's no one bringing me down a notch. I can just enjoy my my sort of subpar baking. Yeah, that's
0: (laughs) great. Uh, So I I like to end, of course, every podcast by asking uh, my guests how they think disability can save the world.
1: I mean, my answer to this question is really going to bring the mood down here, I think. Do Um, it. (laughs) So I I thought about this question because I listened to a couple other episodes, so I, I knew it was coming. But my first thought to that question you know, how can disability save the world? I, I sort of think to myself, like, does an ableist world deserve to be saved? Mm. Like, isn't shouldn't it be reciprocal? Why is it disability's responsibility to save the world? Especially now at a time when during this pandemic, it's clearer than ever that disabled people Are being and have for a long, long time been considered a surplus population, have been considered expendable. And I think if the world isn't going to step up to help save and preserve and cherish disability, then I don't know if disability should have the responsibility of saving the world, unless, you know, unless the world's willing to save disability. I think that's a two way street. And yeah, I'm not. I
0: think that, that is such interested. an amazing answer. Truthfully. <laughs> it's
1: kind of a downer. Um, no, I, but I you
0: know? I think the way you've started it by saying like, is an ableist world worth saving? Right. And I think you framed it like, uh, do you think disability can save an ableist world? And I, you know, and I think for me, that's a really profound way of looking at this idea of like world saving. Right. It's, Um, what are we trying to save maybe it's not about maybe it's not about saving it maybe it's about totally changing it right about totally realigning what it means to live in this in on this planet
1: yeah and I mean that that is work that has to be done um and that is work that is being done in the wake of this pandemic and so I think it's a good time, Fadie, to, to ask that question and to sort of challenge what people think disability can contribute to the project of world saving, which is something that we are all going to have to embark on in one way or another in the coming times. So we'll see what happens.
0: Chelsea, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute just joy to have you on um, and to hear uh-huh. your ideas
1: well, thank you for indulging them. It's so fun to talk to you, Sadie. I really appreciate your thoughtful questions, and I'm looking forward to hearing more of this podcast.
0: Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Chelsea for coming on the show. Get in touch with me by sending an email at world at gmail.com. If you're interested in learning more about me, check out the website, FadieShanouda.com. This podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Fadi Shenouda. Thank you for listening, and see you next time on Disability Saves the World.